0: of the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever trusts or believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. Whoever trusts in him is not condemned, but whoever does not trust stands condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil things hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. In Christ's name, amen. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again, born from above. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter in a second time to his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You can hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you don't understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know. We testify to what we have seen, but still, you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one's ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, that is the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Jesus did many other miraculous signs, John says, at the end of his gospel in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe, that you may trust that Jesus is the Christ, is the Son of God, and that by trusting you may have life in his name. You may be seated. We do not want merely to see beauty, C.S. Lewis says in an essay called The Weight of Glory. We do not merely want to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. We, we want to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, and to become part of it. But at present, we're on the outside of the world, on the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, and they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling. All the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience, then they will put on its glory, or rather, that greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch, And in here and in there and in beyond nature, we shall eat of the tree of life. At present, if we're reborn in Christ, the Spirit lives in us, lives directly on God. But the mind and still more the body receives life from God at a thousand removes through our ancestors, through our food, through the elements. The faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the world are what we now call the physical pleasures. And even thus filtered, they're too much for our present management. What, what, I ask, would it be like to taste at the fountainhead, that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. The whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. O Lord, grant us peace. One of the questions that I find people ask as they get older is, How do I find lasting peace? When people are younger, the question is, how do I find life that's full and fresh? But after a number of years, peace becomes a fairly important ingredient. I read a passage this morning from the third chapter of John. It's a very familiar passage where Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. And Nicodemus compliments Jesus, and Jesus retorts that If anybody is to get into the kingdom of God, he or she must become born again or born from above. The The synoptic gospels have a similar phrase on the lips of Jesus where he says, if you want to get into the kingdom, if you even want to see the kingdom, taste the kingdom, you have to become like a little child. A very similar concept. An attitude of dependence on God is needed. So much so that you can't do anything to get it. None of you asked to be born, you just were. And he says it's something like that. It's, it's so different. The life is so new that, that, it, that it's of a completely different beginning and a completely different flow, and it has a completely different nature. It's just like being born again. And then John, or perhaps Jesus, scholars aren't sure if the great passage of John 3:16 is meant to be on the lips of Jesus or meant to be a commentary by John but in either case in the midst of this sequence Jesus or the or John says for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever trusts in him shall not perish but have eternal life that's what I'd like to speak on this morning It's the theme of the Gospel of John, attaining, being granted, receiving eternal life. Now, the big question is, who wants it? I mean, if eternal life is just a duration that goes on forever, which is the popular way of seeing it, it's everlasting life, as it's sometimes translated. Well, if it's everlasting life with all the pain and all the problems and all the struggles here, or even if it's some everlasting life sitting on a cloud playing a harp with wings, I'm not sure I want it. But when John carefully chose his words in the, in the language of the people all over the Mediterranean region and Koine Greek, the street language, he chose. he could have chosen classical Greek, or he could have chosen the street Greek, and he chose the street Greek, and he carefully chose his words. And when he talks throughout the Gospel of John and says the phrase eternal life, and when he uses it again in First uh, John and Second John and Third John, some 23 times, 17 times in the Gospel of John, he doesn't just mean life that goes on forever. He means a life that has a completely different quality to it. But before we get to that, we learn a couple other things. First, that God's love is antecedent. It it, it is prior. It is before all redemption. It is before sending his son. God's love is first. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. His love was first. His love was the source. His love was the fountainhead. He didn't give his only son so that he could love us. He loved us so much that he gave his only son. His love is antecedent. It is prior. And we learn that his love is active, just like we learned in the first chapter of the first the first verse of the first chapter, God's love is active. God is not interested in staying out of our lives. He wants to get in intrinsically. He wants to be in and part of the weave and the warp and the woof of our lives, part of the pain, part of the sorrow. He is an active God for God so loved the world that he did something. And what did he do? He gave. His love is antecedent, his love is active, and his love is a giving love. And he gave sacrificially. He gave his own son. If I were to somehow allow you to take my son away from me, and I didn't let you take him, I actually gave him to you, there's virtually nothing that I could give you of of greater worth, of greater sacrifice. And yet that's exactly what God gave to the world, his son. And he gave his son for a purpose. What is it? It's so that we can have this eternal life. Which is not just duration, but a different quality of life. It's what he wants. It's what John says at the end of his book. This is why I've written this book in chapter 20. I've written so that you may trust in Jesus. You may believe in his name. And because of that, you may have life. So between God's love and gift of Jesus... And eternal life is this bridge of trust, this bridge of courageous confidence in Jesus, always pointed to Jesus. It seems to be the bridge that connects God's gift with the results of God's gift, which are eternal life. When I was a young man, about 18 years old, we went to a river. It was a big river. I'd played in a lot of streams and kind of dabbled around in mountain streams and things like that, but I'd never really been to a big river and uh, since I was 17 at the time and knew everything we uh, decided to tell my parents we were going one place and then we just happened to go to another and we went to the side of a large river I frankly don't know what the name of the river is now I was trying to remember it a large river in Illinois very large river Big. I'd never seen a river like this and we are camped on the side of this river and at midnight we thought this is the time to go swimming in the big river. Now, this big river was uh, probably—I'm guessing—maybe three quarters of a mile wide. This is not a small river, but it was moving very slowly. You could see—I mean, it was, you could, it was barely moving. It's no big deal. And we got into it, and I noticed the first thing when I got into the water: the stars are out, the moons there, the guys are—you know—doing what guys do, and. And uh, I, the first thing I noticed was that as I put my ankles into the water, it actually, the, the, the flow was a little stiffer than I would have guessed because it really looked like it was going slow. And then I got up into my, up to my chest, and I was on the swim team. I knew how to swim, I wasn't too worried. I, as soon as I let my feet go off the bottom, I, I noticed I was moving a lot quicker than I thought, downstream. And I thought, well, I'll just kind of swim, angle, upstream. and. I was angling upstream, but I was sort of like this, still going downstream. We were acting as though none of us were scared. And uh, we decided we'd swim out to the middle and then come back. So we swam out, we were swimming, we were all pretty strong swimmers. And, and we, you know, we realized by this time we were going to be miles away from camp if, when we made it back to our side of the shore. But we thought, well, it's okay. We can go with Now we're kind of getting used to it. This thing is a lot bigger. It is moving a lot stronger than we ever imagined. And uh, then we heard something which sends chills up my spine even today. We heard a horn from a very large ship. And we looked upstream, up the river. Coming toward us was this huge barge. And we're five or six guys bobbing around. little dots at night in the middle of this river, and this boat, this barge, is coming right down the middle. Well, we start swimming for all we're worth, swimming with the stream, swimming back toward the shore, hoping that we can get out of the way not only of the ship, but of the suction. We knew enough about ships, and it was pretty obvious as it got closer and closer and closer, the suction from that ship could have pulled us under so easily, and it didn't, thank heavens. We all made it back I don't know how many miles downstream, like five or six drowned rats, not feeling quite the bravado that we felt before. Getting into the flow of that river is a bit like getting into eternal life. It's big. It's strong. It, it may look Docile and peaceful, but it's so powerful because it's so strong, it's so deep. You see, the life that Jesus was offering for us to get into is the very life that He experiences with the Father and with the Spirit. Eternal life is not just a long river, it's a deep river, and it's a powerful river. It's the river of life, it's the river of the very life of the universe. In the fifth chapter of John, it says the Father has life in himself, and he's given to the Son the, that, same, that same great characteristic that he should have life in himself. And it's that life, the life with Jesus experienced with the Father, with the Spirit, that he invites us into. That's eternal life. Not just life that goes and goes and goes. A life that's absolutely indestructible. In 1975, I was in a hospital room in Denver, Colorado, actually, Englewood, Colorado. And I was there for a very painful reason. My best friend's son was dying. He was about 18 months old at the time. His name was Eli Nicholas Colorado King Hicks. That tells you a lot about my friend. Eli, because it's a biblical name, Nicholas, because it's a Greek term talking about victory, Colorado, just because he loved Colorado, King after Martin Luther King, Jr., and then his last name. And Eli was dying in this hospital. We figured that he would die the next morning. He had a horrible strep infection that they just couldn't stop and it ate away his, lung, his uh, windpipe. And I was with his father and his mother when he died and my wife. And so I saw my son's playmate die. I watched life just, just eke out and leave this little body. And we sat with Eli. We held him after he died. We read John 11, which his father had asked if I would lead, read the resurrection or the raising of Lazarus. And we prayed that God would raise him from the dead as I say, And God did not. And I can't tell you what it's like to hold an 18 month old in your arms as we did for several, probably an hour, I would guess. And to see his body the same as before, not stiff, not cold like you imagine, just like it was before, but without life. There's almost nothing more grueling to experience. That little body... Cried out to be alive, to be full of breath, to be full of thought, to be full of emotion, to be full of enjoyment, to be full of dreams. And and yet there he was in our arms, limp and quiet, peaceful. And Jesus says "What what the spirit was to this little boy's natural life is what eternal life is meant to be to your walking around life. It's as though you're dead unless you enter into it. You can be walking around with natural life. The Greek word he uses for that is a separate word, bios or psyche. He says you can have natural life, but until you've had eternal life, the very life of the Father and the Son, it's just as though you're dead. And in fact, you will die. The enemy of natural life is death, but the enemy of eternal life is anything that separates us from intimacy with God or sin. Theologians and the Bible would call it. You see, that life that Jesus Christ invites us to is to our walking around lives what the breath of life was to the physical life of that young boy, Eli, Nicholas Colorado King Hicks. So ironically, you can be alive in one sense of the world, but walking dead. It's a different quality of life. It's a different type of life, a different depth of life. It's a life that implies a life without sin because sin separates us from that eternal flow of God's life. What would a life be like free of sin? Free of anything that is not of love's kind, as George MacDonald puts it. What would it be like to walk across this campus, to walk into your classroom as a professor or as a student, or to go to your job as a staff member, or to go back to your family or back to your room? What would it be like to live one single day without sin? With complete forgiveness for the past. With complete confidence for the future. What would it be like to live in that eternal life of God just one day? Paul says it this way in Romans 6, 4, he says, We were therefore buried with Christ through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In fact, he literally says our life might be lived into life. Our already existing natural life might flow over into this eternal life. We might get off of the off of the shoreline and into the flow of the river. You see, when the Bible is straining to talk about eternal life 23 times in the Gospel of John, John is straining because he had seen life. He had seen Jesus, who was life. In the first chapter, he says, in him was life. In the first chapter of his letter, he says, we handled him, we saw him, we talked to him, we knew him, and all we can do is proclaim to you this word of life, Jesus. He closes his first letter by saying simply, if you know Jesus, if you have Jesus, then you've got this eternal life. You're in the flow of the river. And if you don't, you're still on the shore. You're still separated from it. In Ephesians 4.18, Paul puts it this way, speaking of those who've not gotten into the river yet. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. God's life is going on right now as we sit here. The question is, will we enter it, will we be a part of it, or will we not? An eternal life, true life, abundant life, as, John, as Jesus says in the 10th chapter, I've come to give you life in all its abundance. The life that is the to and fro love. Of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the life I want you to be a part of. That kind of life, as one theologian puts it, teaches us to understand the moment in a new way. As free from the past and open to the future. As another one puts it, one can possess eternal life only if one is a branch on the vine, which is Jesus. And another puts it this way, life is only of value when it is nothing less than the life of God. I would love to see 1,200 students go out into this world after four years of stimulating education, saturated, bathing in the life of Jesus Christ. So that your life, in increasing measure, would have more of the depth, more of the wisdom, more of the understanding, more of the active, loving quality that the life of Jesus had. I'd like to see us not fool around, not fool around with wine and drink and sex, as C.S. Lewis puts it, when something so weighty is in the offing. It's not that I want us to see us not have pleasure. It's quite the opposite. I want to see us have true pleasure. In the the article that I read from The Weight of Glory, uh, uh, a tremendous essay, I I think perhaps his greatest essay. Let me reread that last section again. At present, if we are reborn in Christ, that's what Jesus told Nicodemus he needed to be. The spirit in us lives directly on God, that is if we're reborn in Christ. But the mind and still more the body receives life from God at a thousand removes. Through our ancestors, through our food, through the elements, the faint, far off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the worlds. And made what we call physical pleasures. And even thus filtered, these physical pleasures are too much for our present management. Even filtered, that far from the source, physical pleasures, we don't manage them the way they were meant to be managed. And so we wound one another with the very gifts that were meant to bring life. But what would it be, he asked, what would it be to taste at the fountainhead? That stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating. If these lower reaches, if these pleasures, which prove so intoxicating to us, are the way they are, what would it be like if we could climb up to the top of the mountain to the stream that comes right out of the rock and drink from that? Yet I believe, Lewis says, that is what lies before us. The whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. That's what Jesus Christ invited us into, his life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever trusts in him should not perish, but have that kind of life, that deep of life, that profound of life. Father, I pray that we might increasingly... Experience and know the life that your son Jesus Christ offers to us. And that we, like the apostles, when asked if we will leave him or stay, would answer with them, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words that ring of this eternal life. We trust and know that you are the Holy One of God. In your son's name we pray.